Amen. Please be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis chapter 23 for our passage this morning. You can also find this text on the insert inside of your bulletin along with a brief outline of today's message. As we've been walking through the middle section of the book of Genesis beginning in chapter 12, we've reached a bit of a turning point. Up until this point, the primary focus of the patriarchal section has been about and on the life of Abraham. But from this point forward, starting in chapter 24, we will see Abraham's influence and ministry wane as his children will come to prominence. Now, I say all of that, and I cannot stress enough that that's not yet. That's really where we're at starting next week. For a lot of people will say the high point, the the pinnacle of the story of Abraham is chapter 22, and we took two weeks to cover that, the offering up of his son Isaac in faith to the Lord, uh, God's blessing him because of that and through that, and in some ways it is the high marker of his life of faithfulness. But chapter 23, I think, is absolutely vital. Chapter 23, at the death of his wife, his faithful, loving wife, Sarah, I would make the case, and I hope to this morning, is just as important for us to understand. As many of us know, when a loved one dies, it can bring with it many emotions. Sadness, a sense of loss, worry about the future, and even in some ways, joy. Joy can come in these seasons when we consider our Savior, when we consider the eternal state of our loved one if they knew the Lord, as well as the joy we had from the time He gave us to be with them. And so with that, this text becomes immediately relevant and relatable, doesn't it? For we all have had death in our lives. One day the Lord will bring all of us to that state unless He comes back again beforehand. And so we must all reconcile with this idea, with this concept of death, the end of a life, and what does it mean to live and to live well. And to that end, I offer to us the life of Sarah is recorded in the Word of God as an example and as a model for us. That being said, would you please follow along with me as I read for us this morning the Word of the Lord. I'd like to begin in chapter 23 in the first verse. And I'd like to read through the end of the chapter. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kithria Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I might bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zoar that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let, me give it to, let 
him and give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went into the gate of the city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, In the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah was to the east of the Mamre. The field where the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field. Throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a property for a burying place by the Hittites. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you please go with me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon this time. Almighty God, we have heard your word this day. And because it is from you and because it is your word, it brings with it truth and life. And Lord, because we believe in your provision and because we believe in your particular care, we need this word for this day. And so, Father, I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts that we might receive this particular word as your particular people for a particular purpose. Father, give us hope. Give us hope in this life and give us hope in the life to come. And do so through your word, for your glory and for our good. I ask all of these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The story of Sarah, and really the story of Abraham, is a story about faithfulness. You've heard me make this case multiple times, and I I hope it has been um, evident as we've gone through these chapters. And really, it's faithfulness unto the end, right? Because what does it matter if someone is faithful for a while but gives up, or faithful for a while and fails, or is faithful for a little bit but doesn't stand the test? True faithfulness, true enduring, lasting faithfulness is faithfulness unto the end. And the death of Sarah shows us what true faithfulness unto the end looks like. Sarah gives us a model. She serves for us as an example of being faithful unto her God, being faithful unto her husband. Now, that's not to say that that has been done perfectly. That's not to say that it's been done without fault. And yet at the same time, she ends this life trusting in her God. And we'll see that in Scripture as we come in a moment. But what I want us to think about this morning as we consider the life of Sarah and we consider her legacy, I want us to consider what God promised her. He promised her descendants through Abraham. He promised her land through her husband. 
He promised her an inheritance. He promised her a, a place to dwell with Him and a people that would dwell with Him. And I want us to ask a very important question. Has God done what He promised to Sarah? Has God fulfilled that which He said He would fulfill? Did He do it? We'll see that in the case of our text, and my hope is you see the answer is yes. He most certainly has. And I want us to see this by looking at three areas. I want us to see that we must reconcile the fact that even the faithful will face death. It is an unavoidable consequence of this life. We find that in the first two verses. And then secondly, I want us to see this morning that God, even in this scene, begins to fulfill the promises, all the promises that He made to Abraham and to Sarah. And He does that through the purchasing of a tomb. We find that in 3 through 16. And then in verses 17 to 20, as we reflect on the end of the section and really the end of her life as a whole, I want us to see how a temporary dwelling place, and note that word temporary, and marks the end of an era. And so let us consider a life, a life of faithfulness and God's fulfillment of promises through death, through burial, and then through legacy. Let's begin with considering the fact that death occurs. Benjamin Franklin made famous the quote. He's not the originator, but he's the one most known for it. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, he was speaking, and I had to look this up, of the permanence of the U.S. Constitution. And he thought it would last, but he said, alas, nothing can be certain in this life except death and taxes. In some ways, Benjamin Franklin didn't understand the brilliance of the statement he was making, at least in the spiritual sense. Because if we go back in our Bibles, way back in our study of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 3. We get to the point, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit. God has confronted them in the garden, and He's issuing out His judgment upon them and upon the serpent. He says this to Adam, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God's warning to Adam and Eve was that if you eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, of which I have told you not to eat of it, on that day you shall die. Now there's a spiritual aspect to that, when, and there, in a lot of ways that's really the point, is there was death and that there was sin. And what does sin do but bring separation from man and God? In really ways causing death between man and God in that relationship. And we see the effects of that. The Scriptures are testimony over and over and over again to the consequences of that spiritual reality. But while there was a spiritual truth, there also was a physical reality. For Adam and Eve no longer walk this earth. They are dead. Their children, their descendants, the first narrative outside of the garden, what do we get but death? And then over and over and over again, there is life, and life is to be celebrated. We've been on a high from the life of Isaac and the birth and the fulfillment of that promise, and now Sarah dies. And so we must come to terms with the fact that even the faithful will face death, for it is a consequence of sin. God warned man, and God keeps His word. And so we should see at least at the macro level, looking at the big picture, that this passage marks for us again, unfortunately, God's promise. You will die. 
Now, that's not to make light of Sarah, and that's not to make light of death, but that is to help us see that this is the state of things. But I say that, and as we think about Sarah, and we think about her life, she didn't live it perfectly. She had some faults and failures, you know, telling your husband to sleep with your servant, and then beating that servant for sleeping with your husband, and then mistreating that servant's child, which you had your husband conceive, and um, lying to other kings and rulers about being the sister of your, fa- of your husband. There's some things she did that, that we don't want to endorse. But as we look at Sarah's life, and not a lot's known about it, but we look at her life and we look at Abraham, what do we say? But they trusted in God. They trusted in Him. And so while they did face death, it's not because they didn't trust the Lord. It's not because they didn't love God. That's the natural consequence of the sinfulness of our forefather. But let's look at the positive here. Let's, let's look at this not only just from the, the judgment of sin and death, but let's look at a life. Let's consider a life. By God's grace, Sarah lived 127 years. That's a long life by any standards. At this point in the biblical narrative, if you go back to the God's judgment, uh, he stated with Noah, I will reduce the length of man's days. For sin is abound upon the earth. And what does he say? The number of their days shall be 120 years. Sarah exceeds the, the declared expect, life expectancy of mankind. She lives a long, a full life. She's most likely been married to Abraham for a hundred of those. Now, some of us may look at that and go, that's a long time. And we may see that as blessing. And we may go, oh, don't, don't state that. Don't say that out loud. But she's had a faithful husband to love and to follow and to be with for almost a hundred years of that life. She has a husband who, while she doesn't know it, he wept and mourned at her passing. There's that refrain that he goes to weep and to mourn. This is not um, insensitive. This is not out of obligation. This is a man at loss. This is a man who, who has lost his partner. This is a man who who cared deeply for his wife. And that is a blessing. God also granted her the opportunity to see her son grow into adulthood. You always have to be careful doing math in the Bible um, where it's not clearly stated. But Isaac, if, if we're right here, judging by her age, he would have lived in her presence to be about... And oh boy, let me find my, my note here because I don't want to say it wrong about 36 years old. And so Sarah not only got to have Isaac, the fulfillment of God's promise to them, but she got to see him grow, to grow into a man, to to live his life, to mature before them. And so God blessed her. And God blessed Abraham through her and by her. And so and one thing we should do is that we should celebrate We should be excited. We should praise God for the life of Sarah. But it's even more beautiful than that. Again, through Abraham's narrative, the focus is on Abraham, and we don't get a lot about Sarah. However, there are two places in Scripture that we get additional commentary about her and about her life. Uh, The prophet Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 51, he speaks about Sarah. He says in Isaiah 51, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. 
Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Isaiah is is calling the people of Israel to look toward their ancestors. Look to Abraham. Look to Sarah. They were one. You are now many. Isaiah is preaching against a group of people that have forgotten their identity. They've forgotten who they are and where they came from and the God who has called them. And so Isaiah is saying, look where you came from. Because you, people of Israel, you are part of the fulfillment of that promise. You here, people of Israel, you are what I told Abraham I would give and I would provide and I would bring. Do not forget your father and your mother. Do not forget your ancestry. But even, I would say even more beautifully, is if we turn to um, the book of Peter, 1 Peter. Peter speaks very lovingly about Sarah. 1 Peter chapter 3, he's given us an education on what um, true beauty looks like and and what uh, to be a a godly woman and a godly wife looks like. And he says this, 1 Peter chapter 3, Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding of the hair, wearing of gold, jewelry, putting on dresses. Let it be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their husbands. (coughs) Excuse me. Just as Sarah (coughs) obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by fear. Peter says, live like Sarah. For you young ladies in the congregation, if you want to know how can I prepare myself today, maybe you're at that stage that you want a husband in the future, or maybe you're still like, no, never. Um, Time will come. And you want to ask yourself, how can I live what it would be like to be a good wife? How can I be a good woman, a woman that honors God? I'd take you to the Proverbs, particularly Proverbs 31. It's a beautiful passage. But I'd also take you here. Look at Sarah. She was holy. She was righteous. She loved her God and she honored her husband. She didn't only adorn herself externally. Now make no mistake, what is repeatedly said of Sarah in her life? She was beautiful. Even as as her age increases, she's still getting suitors. Now that's because of some sin going on. But there's still men trying to pursue her well into age. But what does Peter say? That's, That's barely even mentioning Here's what's beautiful about Sarah. She was adorned in the gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. And so even for you older ladies, I I encourage you and I entreat you as we think about the life and death of Sarah, look to her. Seek to live faithfully like her. Don't take her mistakes. Don't do the things she did wrongly. But look at what she did right. And so when we think about the fact that death comes, death gives us an opportunity to reflect, doesn't it? It gives us an opportunity to do this. And some of you may be saying, well, pastor, this kind of feels like a eulogy this morning. And in some ways it is. In some ways that's what this passage is meant for, for us to reflect. 
reflect upon a life. But in a good eulogy, you don't only reflect upon the life of that which is lost, you also celebrate. You also praise God for what He did and what He is doing. And so let's do that. Let's not just think about Sarah and her life, but let's think about how through her life God fulfilled promises. We see this in the, in the majority of our passage in, in verses 3 through 16. Now, I mean, fully admit in this section, um, which is the bulk of the chapter, it's a technical negotiation. You are, you're getting a, an education in Hittite uh, treaty process and what is appropriate. Uh, that goes from the bowing and the repetition and the constant back and forth. All of this you're learning about Hittite um, uh, trade. And, but, and I want to talk about that for a second, but there's a spiritual matter that we've got to get to. So let, let me give you the technical, and then we'll, we'll address the spiritual. The Hittites are very sympathetic, aren't they? Abraham comes, and I, I need a place to bury my wife. Oh, you need a place to bury your wife? Bury your wife. You, you want it, you can have it. Abraham, he comes to them with this lowly uh, position, this, this statement of, I'm a foreigner, I'm a sojourner. He's humbling himself before them. I have no status before you. I have no place to, to bargain with you. I, I can't technically do this. I can't entreat you in this way without humbling myself greatly. And then the Hittites, look at them here. They're, they're quick to respond. Oh, no, Lord Abraham, you, you represent your God before us. You have every right to be in our presence and entreat anything of us. What you want, you can have. Now, that's not to say that the Hittites were God-fearing people, but the Hittites knew well the God that Abraham knew through Abraham. And let this just be a good side note. When we live godly lives before our friends, our family, our neighbors, our enemies, if we do it in a humble way and we do it in a way that doesn't seek to dishonor them or to drag them down or bring them down, they will know that and they will recognize that. And in time, they may come to appreciate it and accept it. Because Abraham lived humbly before them. Through the convictions of his God, they noticed. Oh no, you are, the, you are the representative of the Lord your God. What you want, you can have it. And then they go that back and forth with the bowing and the turning to each other. And he says, okay, well, if that's the case, then I, I, I really, I really want to talk um, to this gentleman here. I want to talk to Ephraim. He's got a cave. It's on the edge of his land. It's, it's, it's insignificant. It, it's not that important. It wouldn't be a great cost to you. Let me talk to him, and they grant him access. And then he does it again. He, he goes to Ephraim, and he goes to Ephraim. Ephraim, I want the land, or I want the cave. And, and Ephraim says, No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field. I give you the cave that is in it. Inside of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. And for a second time, we see the life Abraham chose to live, Abraham and Sarah lived before them, had an effect on them and how they responded. Take it, it's yours. Now, all that may be true. And some scholars disagree here. Some scholars say all of this was a bargaining tactic um, by the Hittites. This was a, you know when there's a, a meal and there's one cookie left and there's two of you and you know it's appropriate, you want it, but you know it's appropriate to offer it to your sibling so that they'll say no so you can eat it. Some people argue that's what's going on and that the Hittites really were just shrewd negotiators and they're going, oh no, take it, because they know Abraham's going to come back and go, I'm going to pay, and they're going to, okay, we're, we got you. I don't think that's necessarily the case. While there could be a sense of that going on, 
I do know and I do believe um, that according to Hittite law, if Abraham would have accepted their gift, it would have come more as a loan than a purchase, which would have meant, according to Hittite law, in the years to come, the descendants of Ephraim could have gone to the descendants of Abraham and demanded their land back. And so it would have been a temporary purchase, a loan. And Abraham wants this land. He's certain that this is the land he wants. Um, And so he's going to do what it takes to make it his and make it his forever so that it's not the case that some descendant can come and demand the burial place of Abraham. And what we see come out of that is that Abraham, he loves his wife. I really am convinced the reason Abraham goes through all of this, he endures this whole bargaining, he, he goes through things, and, and Ephraim throws out a number that he probably didn't mean or take seriously, and Abraham's like, all right, let me sign the check. It's because he loves his wife. He cares for her. He wants this land as a place of rest. He says, what is 400? What's 400 between you and me? Abraham lays it out before him. You know, we, we get a similar story um, with King David. Uh, King David um, is wanting to purchase some land. He wants to sacrifice to God. And he goes to meet with Aruna, the Jebusite, and he makes an, all, all, an offer. And Aruna's trying to offer it to David. And David says this, I'll buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offering to the Lord, that my God, that cost me nothing. We see a similar thing with Abraham here. I will not bury the love of my life, the, the, my pride and my joy. I will not lay her to rest in a place that I had to borrow to do so. I will pay the price. Now, I want to throw out an aside here because, again, there may be a little bit of truth to that whole this is all a bargaining a tactic. And we know this because the threshing floor that Abraham bought from Aruna, he paid 50 shekels for Abraham just shelled out 400 for this cave and for this land. Now, we don't know the size of the land that they're, that's like this bargaining deal, but um, eh, he may have paid an exorbitant price. But all that's irrelevant. He paid it. Why? Because he had it. He paid it. Why? Because that's what was offered. He paid it. Why? Again, because he loves his wife, and he's willing to do this for her. Now, that's the technical. That's the bulk of 3 through 16. That's what's going on in the exchange and the talking and the debating. What's spiritually happening here? And, and this, oh, I want us to get this. God's promise to Abraham and to Sarah was that they would inherit the land that God brought to them, or brought them to. Over and over, this promise is reiterated from the beginning. You can go back to Genesis chapter 12. You can see it gone through in the covenant um, making and um, the, the sign of circumcision and the covenant um, retold in and, and, uh, chapter, even chapter 22. We just saw that. But there's one little problem, isn't it? Sarah's dead. She's died. How much land do they have? None. Up until the point of her death, they have nothing. What was God's promise? I will give this to you. And now they have this plot. Abraham, and he pays for it, sure, but he pays for this plot of land. Where did the money come from? 
Who, who, who was the one that provided the riches for Abraham to provide this land? God. Who was the one that brought him to this land? God. Who was the one that rescued him and provided for him and for his family over and over again? God. And so how did Abraham get this plot of land? God. Now why is that important? It's important because of this. The, the, the passage repeatedly tells us um, that this is the land of the Hittites. This is in Canaan. Just a little while later in your biblical narrative, jump through the Pentateuch and, and go to the next book, the book of Joshua. The people of God are tasked with, are charged with, taking over, having conquest of a particular land. This is your inheritance. This is yours. I give it to you from God. Go take it. What was one of the nations that was in that plot? Canaan. So several books later, the people of God are going to, by conquest, take that which God has promised. What does God hand to Abraham here by the death or through the death of his wife? A plot of that land in fulfillment, direct, specific fulfillment of that promise. Now, here's the irony of that. He's, Abraham's going to die and be buried here. And in their lifetime, this is all they get. One plot of land, a burial cave for him, for his sons, and for his sons after them. But God said, I will do this. And it would be very wrong of us to look at that and go, he didn't do it. Because it's his. And like we said, according to Hittite law, Abraham paid for it and he paid excessively for it. So that from now and now forward, any Hittite that came and said, hey, I'd like to have that. Uh, they're going to have to go to the children of Abraham because it's like, no, that's ours. Belongs to us. Now, ironically, the people of God are going to have to conquer it back once we get to Joshua. But God does not forget to fulfill His promises. And it gets even better. It gets even better. Because in our, our final point as we look at the end of an era, we look at this land, the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. And my father's a land surveyor. I, I, I know a land deed document when I see one. That's what's going on here. You could take this and you could go find it. But doesn't that sound like a peaceful place? Doesn't that sound like a place of rest? When you read this, doesn't, don't you get some uh, Garden of Eden vibes from this passage? The beautiful, quiet place, the cave on a hill, the cave with the land, the cave with the trees. It's in a place such as this that Abraham lays his wife to rest. Not long from now, Abraham himself would join her. Isaac and Rebekah will be buried here. Leah and Jacob will be, uh, will be buried here. And in some ways, and in some very specific ways, this is fulfillment of God's promise to them. But in other ways, this is just a taste. Because God's promise wasn't necessarily, or wasn't necessarily only for the promised land. It was for something better. God was promising to Abraham and Sarah heaven itself. God was promising to Abraham and Sarah that they would join brothers and sisters in faith of countless, countless number. In this moment, Sarah is more blessed than Abraham. 
Why? Because well before he did, she got to open her eyes and see the dwelling place of God. She got to see all those that had gone before her, trusted in him by faith. And every day since, more and more and more and more have been added to that number. That's what God promised them. That's what she saw. That's what she's seeing now. That's what he's seeing now. Oh, it was, it was land. It was a possession. It was, it was the promised land. And that's going to be great for, for Israel for a couple generations. And then they squander it because they're Israel and they do those things. But for those who trust in God by what? By faith. They have an eternal place, an eternal home an eternal dwelling, an eternal possession. And what did Abraham and Sarah do? What is said of them repeatedly? They trusted in their God. They were people of faith. Now, you might be saying to me, Aaron, that's great speculation. You're you're trying to tell me that people in the Old Testament looked forward to a better place. They they looked forward to a heavenly state. They looked forward to what you're saying. You're you're, you're conflating the two. I can actually prove it. Well, (laughs) I can't. God can Flip over real quick, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 9, 10, and 16. I'll I'll be quick. Time is running short. This is speaking of Abraham and Sarah. By faith, he, he being Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then the key verse, verse 16. They, Abraham and Sarah, desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. They didn't live in a city. They didn't die in a city. They died outside. They died with not very much to their name at the end of their life. And so what is it talking about here? Heaven. An eternal dwelling with their God. And the writer of Hebrews, God himself tells us that's what they wanted and that's what they looked for and that's what they hoped for. So let me ask this in closing this morning. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? We recognize that death will come for us all. We cannot escape it. We cannot flee it. We can hope to to stave it off through eating properly and exercising and all those things, but yet we don't count our days the Lord does. Because of that, it is vital. It is absolutely vital. We don't spend our focus, our attitude, our attention on that which we can gain and possess. Land, property, assets, benefits. What is your day but... um, a vapor and a smoke. It is here today. It is gone tomorrow. Instead, my desire for you, my, my, my goal for each of you, my goal for my life, my goal for my children, my, my goal for all of us, grab the heavenly. Grab which is not going to disappear and fade and go away. Look to that which is eternal. Cling to that. Hope in that. Because one day, one of us, myself or another minister, we're going to preach a message. They lived a good life. They were faithful. I hope that's the case. 
They loved their God. I pray that that's the case. But in any funeral I've had the pleasure of serving over, the best ones are the ones that I can say, and they are now resting in, receiving, and being blessed by the promise of God. They are gaining more than we can have, and we cry for them, but they don't cry now because they're in the presence of their Savior. Look to the life of Abraham and Sarah. Live by her example. But don't dare to be a Sarah. Dare to love the God that Sarah loved. Dare to love the God that Abraham loved. Look to who they looked to and trust in him for your hope of salvation. Let us pray. Almighty God, oh, are these beautiful words. God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Father, would that be so of everyone here? Would that be so of everyone joining us online for our children in the nursery? Father, we want to know you. I want your people to know you. And I know there are people that aren't here today that need to know you. So bring them. Cause us to desire your word, your love, your truth so much that we share it with them. Let us offer this hope. Father, we accept that death comes and it is difficult and it is hard and it brings with it loss. But may it also bring with us joy. For we are tr- if we trust in you for the hope of our salvation, it is merely a momentary affliction and passing between this life and the life which to come. Sarah was blessed at the moment of her death because Sarah went into the arms of her Savior. Father, I pray that we would know you, we would trust you, we would hope in you, that we would see that you are a God who keeps your promises and continues to do so to this day until you call us in death or you call us home in the return of Christ. I pray all of this is a blessing and comfort to us in Christ's name. Amen.